Hey, good morning. If, if you would, please turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. And at this time, we are going to dismiss all our preschoolers to go back to Children's Church. And uh, there will be some, uh, somebody back there to greet you and uh, get you set up. It's the last room on the right, uh, right side of the hallway back there. Um, Nehemiah chapter 1. Happy Father's Day um, to all you dads out there. Uh, moms, thank you for making us dads. And kids, thank you for making us parents. Um, it is an honor and a privilege to be a dad. Um, we're going to jump back in. Um, we started a, I guess you could call it a series on Nehemiah over a year ago. And so we went through Nehemiah chapter 1. And so um, we're going to go back through Nehemiah chapter 1 again. And then we're going to get into a few verses in chapter 2. So if you would, uh, read along with me in your Bible. It should be up on the screen as well. All right. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa the citadel that Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you command your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the places of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me uh, to the governors of the province beyond the river, 
<clears throat> that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of God. Um, in December of 1973, after years of controversy, our denomination, the PCA, uh, was founded in Birmingham, Alabama at Briarwood Presbyterian Church. Uh, one of the key figures of that movement to found the PCA, the pastor of Briarwood, was Dr. Frank Barker. Briarwood is also the point of origin for the creation of Campus Outreach, which uh, is a ministry that uh, we house here in our church and in our city. Um, and so a little over a decade ago, Dr. Frank Barker traveled from Birmingham down to Troy, Alabama to speak for a missions conference uh, for campus outreach staff and students and some members of First Presbyterian Church in Troy, Alabama. In the midst of preaching regarding implementing faith and evangelism, Dr. Barker conveyed this idea of appropriating faith. The word appropriate, which is spelled exactly like appropriate, which is always confusing for me when I'm reading, um, the word appropriate means to assign, set apart, and take possession of something. To appropriate something is to live and act upon something with a sense of confidence and authority. With that in mind, Dr. Barker impressed upon these people in Troy that in order for Christians to truly be bold in the mission that God has given them to step out and to live missional lives for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God, they must appropriate their faith meaning that they must see what God has called them to do, and which is seen most blatantly in Scripture as the call to take the gospel. Uh, they must see that, knowing what God has called them to do, and they must absorb it as truth. And they must possess it as their own conviction. And then they must go and speak and act as though it is meant to be so. They must live in a way that aligns with their conviction. A Christian is to have faith that, A, God wants to save sinners, B, God has called his people to carry the message of salvation to sinners. And C, that that faith must be appropriated, which means to be put into action as a means of bringing that faith to fruition. That's the message that Dr. Barker elaborated to those believers in Troy. And like I said, sitting among those people were a couple of campus outreach staff members. And so they listened to Dr. Barker. And in light of wanting to see some rejuvenation in their campus ministry, uh, they read their Bibles, and they decided that they were going to appropriate their faith as they served in that ministry at Troy University. These couple of staff guys got some other CO student leaders together, and they started daydreaming about what God might do on the campus of Troy University. And they prayed for students to come to Christ, and they created strategies in order to appropriate their faith. And they practically executed these strategies. Some students, even those who were seniors, decided that they would go and move back into the crummiest dorm on campus, the dorm that housed all the incoming freshman students. And these CO staff and students appropriated their faith, and they went on campus, and they pursued college students. So there was one CO staff guy named Clayton who approached two freshman guys in the cafeteria, and he invited them to come play flag football. Uh, these freshman guys went and they participated, they played flag football, and from that time together, this CO staff guy and a couple of campus outreach student leaders who were seniors, uh, they befriended a um, cunning, handsome, strong-headed Pharisee named Andrew Jones. <laughs> and so 
a few weeks later, Clayton sat down with me in the cafeteria and he presented a, a simple presentation of the gospel. And so at some point in September of 2006, I stopped trying to jump through hoops to earn a standing with God and proving myself to those around me. Um, and I received the gift of grace offered to me by Jesus Christ. I became a Christian because Dr. Barker emphasized an accurate understanding of what it means to live according to faith, and he delivered that to a bunch of campus outreach folks. I became a Christian because those CO staff and students didn't just talk about students coming to Christ. They didn't just type up a strategy on paper, but they went and they made decisions to speak and act in accordance with the faith that they had in God that he wanted to do on the campus of Troy University. They appropriated their faith. Martin Luther says, Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. It is so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. Appropriating faith means to stake your life on the assurance of your hope. It is so certain that you can base every decision and every word on it. Faith makes a difference in this world. And by faith, through faith, we can make a difference in the world to the glory of God. So with all that said, this morning, what I wanted us to examine, I want us to answer the question, how did Nehemiah appropriate his faith, and then what does that mean for us today? So I'm sure you'll recall over a year ago when we went through Nehemiah chapter 1, the conclusion that we came to is that Nehemiah uh, features a textbook example of vision. Andy Stanley says, vision is a mental picture of what could be fueled by the conviction that it should be. Nehemiah caught word from his brother that the homeland of his people, Jerusalem, was in desolation. The walls and the gates had been destroyed, and the people were in trouble and in great shame. So Nehemiah just, he breaks down and he weeps, and he goes into a season of personal prayer and fasting. And soon a vision starts to develop. Nehemiah has the mental pictures, the daydream of what Jerusalem could be. And he begins developing the conviction that it should be. That vision shapes his prayer life. He starts praying in that direction. He gets specific enough to ask God to grant him some favor before King Artaxerxes. We need to remember that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. And this position was uh, similar to secret service and chief of staff and a butler. They're called a cupbearer because uh, whenever a king would drink a cup of wine, they were to taste test it just to check in case it had not been poisoned. Okay, so now that brings us all up to speed to today. So point number one, if, if you have a bulletin, there's an outline on the back there. If you are a note taker, you can follow along there. Point number one, Nehemiah appropriated his faith by waiting. He appropriated his faith by waiting. Nehemiah was patient. So how do we know that he was patient? In the scripture where it says that the month of Nisan, that means that Four or five months had passed since Nehemiah received the news about Jerusalem. So keep in mind that Nehemiah's initial response was that he wept for days. And now we see that he had to sit with that, that grief, for at least four months. That requires some emotional endurance, and we'll, we'll come back to that. and undone. He could have stormed in before the king in an emotional fit. 
He could have decided to look inwardly in order to seek his own wisdom, and he would have been tempted to abrasively dive into a game plan that would have had a point of origin in his own sorrow. And his faith is initially appropriated by waiting on God. Nehemiah chooses to turn towards the Lord and to seek his face, to seek his wisdom, to seek his timing. And this can make a huge difference. Faith that is appropriated by waiting is the difference between wasting your time and investing your time. When we operate from a place that lacks faith, we will rush and we will force action according to the desires in the moment. However, if we exercise our faith by remaining calm, we actually invest our time. We invest our time in God by seeking his counsel and asking him to make plain the path that he would have us take. When we fail to invest our time through faith by waiting on God, we will try to do in our own strength what only God can do. True faith appropriated through waiting on God will bring a sense of peace in our hearts. When we read God's word, this, this concept should not come as a surprise to us. God commands waiting faith all over the Bible. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. So what does that mean? What are the implications of that little verse? Being still means that you are refusing to allow our hearts to become cluttered with your so-called wisdom. We are pushing back against our own folly. Instead, we pause and we know that God is God and I am not. Knowing means that I have the assurance that God's wisdom is authentic and I can stake my whole life on it. That's the definition of faith. God is the one who possesses all power, all strength, and all wisdom. He alone can handle the weight of the universe. And it should bring us a significant sense of relief to know that we do not control the affairs of our life. And that's an odd way to define peace. I have no control, and the more I try to control my life, the less peace I have. That's counterintuitive. But when we know God and we know his power, we know that the best, wisest, and most peaceful way to live is to wait on him and to put our trust in him. And frankly, this is just good theology. The Bible blasts the sovereignty of God. The Bible wants you to absorb the goodness of his providence. The Bible is true, but is it true for you? Do you experience this truth? Do you practice this truth? You have faith that God is both good and sovereign. Are you appropriating that faith? Are you actually sitting still and turning to the Lord, trusting in his goodness and providence? Do you see that God has intended goodness for your life, even when life is sorrowful and hard? Do you have confidence in the Lord's enduring patience with you? Nehemiah appropriated his faith by waiting. And so now we're going to move to point number two, uh, and we're going to spend a lot of time here. Nehemiah appropriated his faith by grieving. Nehemiah acted on his faith. He brought his faith to fruition through grieving. To properly grieve is in and of itself an act of faith. We remember Gordon Gecko in Wall Street saying, greed is good. And I hope that you would hear today that grief is good, which seems insane to say. Um, how in the world can we say that grief is good? Grief is terrible. It's so difficult. It is the experience of sorrow. But I want to say that it is good. 
At the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 1, we read that Nehemiah receives the news about the state of Jerusalem and the trouble of his people. He sat down and he wept and he mourned for days, praying and fasting in the midst of this. His grief is so severe that about four months pass and he is still grieving in such a way that the king is able to perceive and visibly notice his grief. And that's a big deal. You see, in ancient times, kings and monarchs would forbid any sadness or any personal baggage from their presence. In fact, if you were to bring in sorrow or uh, get noticeably caught up in your own personal issues, the king could have you banished or he could have you killed. So for Nehemiah to be so caught up in his grief that he would dare show any indication of his grief before the king uh, is in and of itself an act of playing with fire. This makes what uh, Artaxerxes' response so amazing. His curiosity towards Nehemiah's countenance was a testimony to the fact that Nehemiah had much favor with the king. Then also, it was a testament to God's providential influence over Artaxerxes' heart. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. It turns wherever he wills. When Nehemiah comes before the king in sorrow with palpable grief, Artaxerxes' heart is in the hand of God. What does it say about Nehemiah's grief that God himself would providentially intervene in order to have that grief addressed with the king? For four months, Nehemiah had not let apathy enter his heart. He had consistently grieved for his homeland and for his people. Grieving for four months. And so Nehemiah is not being very obedient to Scripture. Philippians 4.4 says to rejoice in the Lord always. But the New Testament wasn't written yet, so we can give Nehemiah a pass for that one. <laughs> Psalm 100 verse 2 says, come before the Lord with joyful song. So what's Nehemiah's excuse? He should have snapped out of his grief, Right? If I could, I would buy every believer in this room a copy of the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. Uh, the book is, is about exactly what the title says. God made you to be spiritual, physical, rational, and yes, emotional beings. For some reason in our modern church culture, we've concluded that emotions are bad. May God cast that lie into the pit of hell. I have believed and lived according to that life for most of my Christian life, and I want to repent of that. All that to say, you should go and read Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, there is a chapter in the book called Enlarge Your Soul Through Grief and Loss. So that's where most of the second point comes from. I just want to give credit where credit is due. The greatest tragedy for your spiritual life is to be immersed in unreality. Because true spirituality is not an escape from reality, but instead is an absolute commitment to reality. Have you noticed in our culture we are prone to define and interpret loss as an invasion or infection that interrupts our so-called normal lives? When we are confronted with loss and the pain that comes with loss, usually our first reaction is to try and numb the pain. We deny, we blame, we rationalize, we become dependent and prop ourselves up with various addictions, or we just flat out avoid loss and pain and pretend it doesn't really exist. We get angry with others, even our closest loved ones, because they don't or can't take away our pain. 
We read our Bibles looking for spiritual shortcuts around the pain. We are trying to spiritually white-knuckle our way out of sorrow. Notice that based on what we can gather from Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2, that we don't see him uh, resorting to these common, faulty methods. Nehemiah doesn't seem to run away from his pain at all. He embraces it. Knowing that his homeland and his people have suffered hurts, and he sits in the hurt. This is critical to see because the result of denying or minimizing pain over time leads to us becoming less and less human. We are often satisfied to just become empty human shells. If you've seen the Batman movie, The Dark Knight, uh, we're kind of like the Joker. We force a smile on our face, willing to cause ourselves further pain by carving a smile in our cheeks and then painting that pretty red color over it. In our culture, and we in the church, we're clearly not immune from this. In our culture, we find comfort in our addictions to deal and manage our pain and sadness. For some of us, it's constant television. Or maybe we turn to busyness. We work ungodly hours at our job. Or we consume ourselves with extracurricular activities. All because we know if we have to sit still for five minutes, we'll be confronted with our pain. Pornography, overeating, dependency on drugs and alcohol. Part of the reason some of us have such unhealthy relationships with loved ones, friends, or sexual partners is because we're angry at them because they can't take away our pain or carry our pain for us. How much of all this is based on the lie that, a, that to be a Christian means I can't grieve? I can't be hurt, I can't feel pain, I can't be sad. The author of this book I've mentioned, Peter Scazzaro, he's a pastor. And so once he had a visitor in his church who he refers to as Joe. So Joe spoke with Peter one day after church, and he said this, Feeling sad or depressed or anxious about the future has got to be due to my unbelief. This is not God. It has to be related to my sins. I just figured it was better I stay away from church and Christians for a while until I get over it. What a tragedy. How many people have felt this way about the church when the reality of the church is meant to be a refuge for the brokenhearted? To be an authentic human is part of what it truly means to be a Christian. When Jesus stepped out of heaven in order to take on human flesh in our world, he was the perfect man. He was a whole man. He was a complete man. He was the most authentic form of humankind. In spite of him having to endure the results of the fall in physical flesh, he was perfect humanity. Therefore, his mental, rational human mind was perfect. And yes, he experienced a perfect emotional inner life. His emotions were perfect. So with that in mind, consider this. Did Jesus Christ grieve? Did Jesus experience emotional pain? And how do we know? In John 11, we're told a story. Some of Jesus' closest friends were Mary and Martha, who lived in the village of Bethany. And one of Jesus' other really close buddies was a man named Lazarus. So Lazarus gets bad sick to the point that Mary and Martha send messengers to Jesus to tell him while Jesus is out of town. And they go and they tell him, your friend is sick. So John 11, verse 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Lazarus. That's a really encouraging verse. You know what the next verse says? So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. 
That's crazy. And come to find out a few verses later, Jesus tells the disciples that they need to go to Bethany because Lazarus has fallen asleep, which was code for Lazarus died. And Jesus tells these guys, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you might believe. So by the time Jesus shows up in Bethany, Lazarus has been dead as a doornail for four days. Now, we all know how the story ends, right? But in knowing that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, it is so shocking that Jesus intentionally allowed Lazarus to die and that he would take so long to make his point. It is as if Jesus really wanted Lazarus to be super dead. Mary and Martha are upset with Jesus, and they're telling him, if you had been here, you could have saved him. You could have healed him. Um, So naturally, there is a lot of grieving going on in the town of Bethany. There are a lot of tears. And then we have what I think is one of the most fascinating verses in the the entire Bible, and this is John uh, 11, 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. In a few moments, Jesus is about to merely raise his voice. He's going to cause Lazarus to walk out of the tomb. And he's sitting here, and he's taking account of everyone's grief. And he does not rebuke their grief. In fact, as he pauses in the midst of their grief, he himself is filled with grief. Jesus walks to the tomb, and we get the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. What is going on here? Jesus intentionally allowed Lazarus to die in order to build the disciples' faith. He informs these guys that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he still grieves. He's God. He's sovereign. He knows everything. He knows how this little encounter is going to end, and he still grieves. He still weeps. We are confronted with an important truth here. If Jesus Christ is truly God in the flesh, sovereign over creation, even dead men... And if Jesus is the true, perfect, authentic human, what does that tell you about grief? What does it say to you? What does it mean to you that Jesus Christ absorbs uh, observes the pain of his friends, approaches the grave of his dead friend, and he is so so moved by it all that he weeps? Do you want to be the one to go tattletale to Paul and accuse Jesus of failing to rejoice in the Lord always? Grief is good. Because grief is authentic humanity, which is what you were created for. To deny your grief is to deny your humanity. And to deny your humanity is to deny your creator. To live in full reality of this world, to be an authentic human being, to be an authentic image bearer of God, you must confront your pain. You must grieve. And I know that turning towards our pain and embracing it is so counterintuitive. But we are Christians, and the heart of Christianity is that the true way to life is through death. The pathway to resurrection is through crucifixion. There can be no Easter Sunday without a Good Friday. If Jesus does not turn to the grief and the pain and the sorrow of the cross, then there can be no celebration three days later when he steps out of the tomb. In the book, A Grace Disguised, the author, Gerald Sitzer, he spends time reflecting and processing a huge tragic loss. In one horrific car accident, he lost his mother, his wife, 
and his daughter. Instead of uh, trying to cope or avoid the pain, he embraced the pain and the darkness that comes with it. He allowed the grief to transform him. Sisser learned that the quickest way to reach the sun and the light of day is not to run west chasing after it, but instead to head east into the darkness until you finally reach the sunrise. The night is darkest just before the dawn. So how do we properly grieve? How do we live as authentic human beings and embrace our pain and grief? Peter Scazzaro, he gives a pattern and a rhythm for this too, and so I've given you three blanks there for three subpoints. So A is this. Pay attention to yourself and pay attention to God. Why do we have such an aversion to grief, to sorrow, and sadness? It's not merely that we don't like it. Nobody likes to be sad. But there's also an issue for us in that we think that grief is in and of itself sinful. We think that it's bad. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible permits us to be grieved, but it commands us to bring that grief before God. Where sin enters regarding grief is when we choose to avoid or stuff the pain of grief. The problem with that is that when we stuff our sorrow and anger, which, by the way, nine times out of ten, anger is built on a foundation of sorrow. When we stuff those things, we begin to leak and ooze. You can see this with passive-aggressive behavior, sarcastic remarks, or a sharpened tone of voice, or maybe giving a cold shoulder. Those leaks are hard to see in ourselves, but they're affecting those around us. Sometimes we don't really leak, we explode. Our pain wells up inside us like a geyser until it explodes and spews out in a fit of fury and belligerence. We in the church have embraced a false theology of the human emotional life. We have been convinced that God has called us to harbor our negative emotions, to stuff them down deep in our inner being, and by refusing to deal with those negative emotions, we will entice God to honor and bless us. Consider how foolish it is to believe that God will be pleased with the fact that we have failed to live as authentic human beings. If God himself grieves, then it is fitting and right that we reflect his character by properly grieving ourselves. We must not deceive ourselves any longer. Our manufactured happy-go-lucky, how-are-you-I'm-fine personas will only lead us to a slow death. With Nehemiah, we see that he embraces the grief that strikes him upon hearing the terrible news. He weeps for days. He mourns. He is acknowledging the deep pain for his homeland and his people. He's not shying away from reality. He's embracing it. So much so that even when he's before the king, in spite of the threat of banishment or death, he is still processing his pain. He is aware of his pain. Likewise, Nehemiah is paying attention to God. He was continually fasting, continually praying. And again, as his grief is made aware to the king, Nehemiah continues to pause and to pray and pay attention to God, not just his own grief. All right, next point, B, properly grieving. You must sit in the confusion or sit in the tension, either one. You remember the story of Job, um, when Job was stricken and he lost his children and all his wealth? Remember how his friends came to him and their counsel was to tell him that Job must have sinned and that's why God was doing this? Job never slipped into that place. Job was a righteous man. Instead of blaming God, he chose to just sit there in the pain of his grief and wait for God to provide the clarity. 
Job's friends were operating under a misguided understanding of you reap what you sow. Have you ever talked to people uh, who try to make you feel better, but once you get finished talking to them, they make you feel worse? Those were Job's friends. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Job 13.5, where Job tells his friends, Oh, that you would be altogether silent, which is the biblical way of saying shut up. (laughs) For you, that would be wisdom. That's what he tells his friends. Um, This was a spiritual confusion for Job and for his wife and for his friends. Job did not know about Satan coming before God. He did not know that Satan had challenged God regarding Job's devotion. Job did not make a decision to panic, and he did not erratically blame God. So much so that the, uh, excuse me, he did not erratically blame God. Instead, he wept, and he waited for God to bring clarity. And God dropped a bomb of clarity on Job, so much so that the last thing that Job says in the book, Job says to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Job chose to sit in the confusion. He chose to sit in the tension. And by doing so, he ended up obtaining a deeper understanding and a deeper experience of God. Nehemiah is similar. Again, if you go back to when Nehemiah first gets the news of Jerusalem and his people, he weeps, he mourns, he prays. And Nehemiah does not shy away from the tension in his prayer. When he prays, he confesses to God. I know that my father's generation has sinned, and I know that I have sinned, but I know what you've said, Lord. I know what you've promised. I know that your heart is good towards your people and that you want to gather your people back together. Nehemiah embraced both the grief of his own sin and he had the faith in the goodness of God. He did not make any assumptions or conclusions about God. He sits there in the tension, and he asks God to move on behalf of his people. And then he waits for the opportunity. All right, last sub-point here. C, embrace your limits. To properly grieve, you must embrace your limits. Um, We are all confronted with the blatant reality that we are not God. We are not all-knowing. We are not all-powerful. And because of those limits, we experience loss and pain in this life that are beyond our control. You can't stop loved ones from dying. You're not all-knowing, and so you can't know the internal anguish of your friends, of what they're going through, how they're suffering. We are often not a place in life where we thought we would be. Have you ever grieved all your dreams that never came true? All those hopes and ambitions that never manifested? Unfulfilled dreams rob us of hope. Unless we grieve that they never came true, we can't accept our limits, and we can't move forward waiting on God to reveal his dreams for us. Part of grieving includes embracing your limits and accepting reality. Nehemiah embraced his limits. He came to grips with the reality of his situation. He was sober to the reality that he, by himself, could not solve the problem of Jerusalem. He had a pure grief, a grief that embraces the pain and sorrow over his homeland. He did not try to blame himself. He did not try to blame others. He chose to sit in his pain. And as he did so, clarity began to set in. God began shaping a plan in his mind. Nehemiah was limited in the fact that he was a cupbearer to a pagan king. He could not leave his post without the approval of the king, and he could not do anything about Jerusalem without the authority of the king. Those are very clear limits. 
Nehemiah did not try to lead an insurgence against the king. He did not try to sneak out and run away. Instead, he embraced his limits, and he acted according to those limits. He was able to have a proper grief for his people and for his homeland without it being marred by anger and foolishness because he embraced his limits. It takes faith to embrace limits because every time you do, you are confessing to God that he is the Lord and I am not, and I'm going to live as such. So Nehemiah appropriated his faith through properly grieving. So we're going to move on to our final point now. Um, Nehemiah appropriated his faith by asking. Because Nehemiah does not shy away from his grief, uh, that sorrow becomes apparent before the king. So instead of throwing him out or killing him, the king dialogues, dialogues with Nehemiah about why he's so downcast. After hearing the situation, the king gets right to the point. What are you requesting? Think about the magnitude of that question. The king was not playing games. He was direct because he knew Nehemiah had a purpose and he had a plan in mind. He gets right to the point. The way Nehemiah verbally processed his grief generated that response. Appropriated faith waits on God, and appropriated faith leads us to grieve our losses and turn to God with them. But when God presents an opportunity for action, appropriated faith pounces with boldness. It was apparent that Nehemiah had been consistently praying, fasting, and planning. As the king became graciously inquisitive, Nehemiah revealed his plan to the king. Like we said, Nehemiah could not vacate his possession of the king's palace, especially such a critical one. He could not do that without the approval and the authority of the king. And Nehemiah was cunning enough to obtain that because he graciously appropriated his faith in God by speaking up and asking the king for the things he needed. It's interesting to contrast Nehemiah's experience with Artaxerxes and the, the dynamic between Moses and Pharaoh in Exodus. Remember, Moses waited on God. Well, God had to kick him in the pants. But Moses obeyed God and went to Pharaoh and boldly communicated God's expectations. Let my people go. But when Pharaoh did not relent, God struck Egypt with multiple plagues. And in the end, Pharaoh's hard heart led to his destruction. But with Nehemiah, he obeyed God first through patiently waiting on him and allowing himself to feel the weight of his sorrow. Then when the opportunity arose, Nehemiah found favor with the king. The king granted him all that he needed because the king's heart was turned in the hand of God. As Moses appropriated his faith through asking and demanding that Pharaoh release the people of Israel, God revealed the power of his providence. As Nehemiah appropriated his faith by asking the king for what he needed, God revealed the wisdom of his providence. These two different accounts of appropriated faith both point to the reality of God's gracious sovereignty as he works out his will in the world. And they stand as a testament to the fact that we can act on our faith. We can ask of God and we can ask of men. We can appropriate our faith, knowing that God will act in accordance with his purposes. Appropriated faith leads us to a place of dependence and constant petition before God. In order to teach us about how we should appropriate our faith through asking, and to do so without losing heart, Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 18. There was a judge who did not fear God, and he did not respect people. And a widow kept coming, and she demanded, give me justice. In the beginning, the judge refused, but after the widow's unceasing persistence, 
the judge came to the conclusion that even though he was not a man of God, and even though he did not respect this woman, he would give her justice so that she would not wear him down. When Jesus tells the story, he wants to impart to his followers that if this unrighteous judge would give in to persistency, how much more will your good and heavenly Father respond in holiness? How much more is his heart moved to act according to our faith in him? We love to talk about good theology about God, but how many of us are willing to actually appropriate what we believe about God through coming to him with our petitions? At the end of that parable, Jesus closes it out in verse 8, saying, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This morning, we've examined and appropriated our faith through waiting on God, properly grieving, and asking for God to act. How can we know that it is not in vain to wait on God? How can we know that we can take our grief before the throne of God instead of stuffing it and avoiding it or coping with it? How can we know that we can bring all our petitions before God and that he will hear us and he will be moved by our faith? The reality is that we are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is not allowed in the presence of God. Sin is destroyed in God's holiness, and he refuses to allow it to infect his glorious presence. Because of our sin, how can we be granted strength as we wait on God? How is it possible that we can bring our grief before him? If no sorrow or personal baggage was allowed before human kings, what makes us think that we can bring our grief and baggage before God? What makes us dare think that we have the right to approach him with any petitions? How dare we? Make any requests of the one true king of heaven and earth. As we look to the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, we must take into account how he perfectly appropriated perfect faith. In accordance with the timing of the Heavenly Father, Jesus was sent to earth bearing full humanity. He arrived on our planet as a zygote, a fetus in the womb of his mother, God the Son waited nine months in the womb and experienced the trauma of birth. He left the glory of heaven and decided to spend nine months in a womb, and he entered into the world through birth just like every other human being. You want to talk about patient waiting faith. Not only that, he spent 30 years as a boy, a teenager, a young man, in perfect patience, working carpentry with his earthly dad. Imagine Jesus building a chair in solitude, praying to the Father, meditating on Scripture, waiting for the perfect time. Remember Jesus' first miracle? He turns the water into wine at the wedding. But before he chose to do that, he said to his mother, my hour has not yet come. Jesus was always waiting perfectly on his Heavenly Father in his timing. How is it possible for lowly, broken people like us to come and to grieve before the creator of the universe? What's to keep God Almighty from flicking us away like a gnat when we try to approach his glorious throne? If we are to truly know the answer to these questions, we must know who Jesus Christ is. Think about Isaiah 53, that great prophetic chapter about the coming Messiah, the suffering servant. Do you know how this chapter labels Jesus in verse 3? Jesus Christ would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Messiah would be the Savior, the perfect man. He would also be God incarnate. 
So if anybody gets the privilege of coming before God Almighty with their sorrows and their pain, it would be Jesus Christ. How dare we think that we can stand in line and wait our turn behind Jesus. But if we look at the next verse in Isaiah 53, verse 4, we read this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, we wouldn't dare bring our griefs before God because our greatest sorrow and grief was the reality that our sin has separated us from God. God was grieved by our sin, and we were grieved by his righteous justice towards our sin. Our greatest grief was God himself. Woe is me. That would have been our motto for all eternity. But to all who do receive Jesus Christ, who believe in his name, Jesus gives them the right to become children of God. Because Jesus bought us the ultimate peace with God with his blood, the true peace that relieves that terrible grief between us and God, we are now children of God. We are in the family of God. God is our Father. Because of Jesus' work on our behalf, we possess the same rights and privileges before God's throne that Jesus does. That feels blasphemous to say. That's insane, but it's true. That is God's covenant with his people. If we receive Christ, then God covenants to treat us as children for the rest of our lives and for all eternity. Ephesians 1.3 says that Jesus has granted us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not some, not a few, every. We're not only allowed to bring our grief and lamentation before God, we're commanded to. God's posture towards his people is now one that says, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted by me. You do not go and try to find comfort anywhere else. Don't try to stuff it, don't try to cope with it, don't try to numb it with food and intoxication and overworking. I am your father. I am your peace. You bring your grief to me. We have the privilege of appropriating our faith in God by coming to him and treating him like a perfect father. We appropriate our faith by being honest with him, even when our honesty is so messy. And lastly, what would make us think that we can bring our petitions before the throne of God? How can this be? When King Artaxerxes made an observation about Nehemiah's sadness, Nehemiah became very afraid. God is a king who doesn't just make perceptive observations. He is the one true king who knows everything, what we're thinking, how we feel, our desires, and our dreams. We can't hide from him. So if Nehemiah was afraid of Artaxerxes, shouldn't we be terrified of God? Since he knows everything, He knows all our skeletons in the closet and all that filth hidden in the dark. But, love buts, don't we? But for those who are in Christ, those who have appropriated faith by trusting Christ to bear the weight of their significance and the burden of their sin, we have been given the right to come before the throne of God with our petitions. And again, it's not only a privilege, it's not only an invitation, it's a command. In Hebrews 4, we read that because Jesus is our true great high priest, the one who is able to perfectly empathize with us in every way, because of that, 
we are to then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The language used in that passage means that we are to approach God's throne with freedom of speech. We are to bring raw, unadulterated prayers, appropriating our faith that Jesus has purchased our right to bring those prayers to God in confidence that God is our Father. It is dangerous to come and to place our trust in Jesus Christ. Tim Keller says, Jesus wasn't just a nice guy who did good in the world. You don't crucify nice guys. You crucify threats. Jesus is the ultimate threat to darkness and sin. The very nature of Jesus includes danger. Jesus invites us to walk with him in the midst of grief, even when it's painful, not to run away from it. Jesus invites us to sit sit still with him in the midst of the chaos of life and just wait on his wisdom. Doing nothing can often feel like the most dangerous action of all because we are releasing control to Jesus. You don't just sit still in the middle of a battlefield. Jesus tells us that we are to boldly bring our petitions to God. The danger in petitioning the person of Jesus Christ is that he may grant your prayers and so much more. He may take you to places and lead you in directions that destroy your comfort zones, both practically and inwardly. I've got a quote here. It should be up on a slide. Dr. Dan Allender says this, God promises us redemption, but his sacred path leads us away from safety, predictability, and comfort. Any attempt to fly over the dangerous terrain or make a detour to safer ground is doomed because it will not take us to God. Instead, it leads, leads to a host of other idols that cannot provide us with the confidence of faith, the dynamic of hope, or the passion of love we so deeply crave. Jesus is worth the danger of appropriating our faith in him. This is the last thing to close out. Um, I would like to share a story from a little excerpt uh, from one of the Chronicles of Narnia books by C.S. Lewis. And confession, I've never read a Narnia book. And I thought for sure I'd get a tomato thrown at me or something. Uh, but I'll probably just get jumped out in the parking lot later. Um, I'm, I, I must say, I, I've loved some of the content um, that I've come across uh, from the books over the years. And I've learned a lot just from hearing about the books. And so I want to read one excerpt from the book, The Silver Chair. And if you remember, Aslan the Lion is a representation of Christ in, in Narnia, Okay. C.S. Lewis described Aslan as if there were such a world as Narnia, how might God the Son manifest himself in that world to redeem it? Aslan rules over the mystical world of Narnia, and he often shows up at critical moments. So in this book, The Silver Chair, a girl named Jill has gotten lost, and she is dying of thirst. She then comes across a stream of water, and she hears a voice. If you are thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was a lion speaking. Anyway, she she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. 
Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that Without noticing yet, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose... I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. We were all thirsty, and we're all dying of thirst. And Jesus Christ offers us the eternal abundance of living water. But to drink that water is to trust in the line of Judah. Who among us would dare to place our trust our sorrows, and our petitions in this person. Is Jesus Christ worth the danger? Can we risk accepting his offer? And the real question is, how can we afford not to? Let's pray. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Um, Father, I'm just really glad that the gospel is not a good idea and it's um, not a, a fancy philosophy and it's, um, it's not a nice little story that someone came up with. The gospel is reality. It is truth. It is true. Father, please help us to believe this. Help us to believe Father, that we can wait on you, that we can be patient and wait for your wisdom. Help us to believe, Father, that you care about our grief. Help us to believe that, that you are grieved, that you hurt, that you hurt on our behalf. Help us to sense that you implore us and call us to come before your throne. Help us to believe that you want us to bring our petitions before you because you are a good and heavenly Father. God, we pray... All of this in Jesus' name, amen.